Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. So this evening, I'm sat with Giles Pendleton, Executive Director of Development for what has in recent times been the most talked about development in the world. A scheme which is intended to accommodate 9 million people, 170 kilometres long, but just 200 metres wide. It is, of course, the line, part of the wider neon master plan in Saudi Arabia. Now, Jazz is no stranger to mega projects, so I am very excited to hear what he's learned from about himself and the tools necessary to succeed when the stakes are so big. So, Jazz, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for the invitation. Um, so, let's get us started. Tell us how Chapter One begins. So, for me, Nick, Chapter One started uh, in the early 90s uh, in Durban, South Africa, where I grew up. And uh, I always wanted to be an architect. And um, the entry requirements for uni had uh, quite high standards uh, of entry. And I thought, the, I did a, an intern session with an architectural practice and, and it, you know, it wasn't what I thought it would be. And then I did an internship with a construction company at the time, Boyk subsidiary in South Africa, and thought, this is really up my alley. It was a design management role in a, in a, in a design and build for a prison. And I, I thought, you know, that that's more uh, in line with that sort of that creative uh, delivery side um, that I thought real estate was all about. And um, I studied uh, construction management and quantity surveying, and uh, spent uh, three years with uh, with Buick as a Buick subsidiary, should I say, building prisons, um, shopping centres, office parks, etc. And um, felt that I. You know, I'd learned a lot in those three years. And, and, and as you are, when you, you're straight out of uni, you think you know everything because you've got great grades at uni. But I really thought I wanted to try what's the next step up from this? You know, you're at the bottom of the food chain, so to speak, as the contractor. You have the client, you have the project managers, you have your uh, professionals above you. And I um, I thought, well, if I want to move up a level, I'm going to have to move move out of the comfort zone I was in. So I... Um, I took on a challenge and uh, I had a I had a mate with E.C. Harris at the time in the, in the late 90s in Eastern Europe. And uh, I found myself uh, in Warsaw in Poland in 1998 in the snow from the, the sunny climbs of Africa and thought, what the hell am I doing here? Um, because there was this white stuff everywhere. <laughs> and you're not quite used, <laughs> used to where I'm from and on any of our building sites. Um, but that challenge, you know, coming out of my comfort zone was critical to my thinking in um, if you want to step up, you've got to step up where people need you to step up. Um, and those opportunities, you have to find them. So if you sit in your comfort zone, in, in, my, in my particular instance, um, waiting for a that great project to work on, it might not happen. Um, but you can go and find a great project to work on and sort of get onto it. So that journey led me to, to Poland. And um, I met my wife there, uh, Australian expat. And you know, worked uh, for EC Harris, which was great. You know, and I'd gone from a from a construction background into a project management and design management environment. So no more muddy boots. Uh, now I'm wearing ties and 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 uh, wearing a suit, which still, after twenty nearly thirty years, still don't fit as well as they should. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm a little bit more of the the casual guy. Um, but Poland was fantastic, you know. Then you start interfacing with global players, you know, the likes of Toyota. We did a, a factory for them, and it was just exposed to a completely different way of doing things and and learning a lot. And I think along the way, 
I've always had sort of a, a mentor, for use of a better word. I think someone who who's in your environment, and in, 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 in my my instance in South Africa, it was um, a gentleman by the name of Peter Felix, who you know we'd go to rugby together and cricket, and it became more than just a a senior person at work. It became sort of a friend, um, and we still are. 20, nearly 30 years later, we're still mates. Um, we still chat on WhatsApp. I still, he's a sort of a, a quasi mentor to me now, I suppose. Somebody you can, who's grounded enough that he can, you know, call you out uh, on things. Um, and it's good to have a different point of view of your world um, by somebody who actually knows you very, very well. And, that, and that's been critical for me. I've had two very, very good mentors in my in my career, and both of them, as I said, I've been to one's second wedding and the other one's third wedding. <laughs> but um, I, uh, at, that's the level we've become, we've become mates. And, and um, you know, that, that's, that's a very, very big part of, of my career has been um, having somebody who is in your space professionally, but, uh, and is generally senior to you, um, who's be, sort of been there, done it before, um, but who you have a, a very good working relationship with. Um, so that's definitely been what sort of led me into into spreading my wings. You know, Peter's view to me was, look, you can climb the ladder as far as you as far and as fast as you can climb it, sitting working with me, or you can you can move to the next level. And he was the one who actually introduced me to to the guys at EC Harris uh, at the time. So yeah, a lot uh, to be thankful for 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 those mentors in in sort of opening doors. Now, if I can interrupt, then Charles, I got I got to speak to uh, to one of those mentors, someone who knew you from the very very earliest days as well before before recording. Um, now I asked them what what they considered to be some of your most sort of prominent traits back then, and this is this is really interesting. So they said his motivation is one of my lasting impressions, because it was already evident at the very earliest stage of his career, he was definitely more inclined towards playing a greater role in identifying and delivering development projects, not just building them. And that's that's something obviously you've, you self-confessed there, isn't it? Moving from contractor uh, uh, to advisory, looking to get, to get more involvement, looking to get closer to decision makers. But it's also you've also done it at such a sh- an early stage in your career, and not only moved moved jobs, moved sectors, moved location as well. Yeah, you know, this takes guts, right? This take yeah, you know, this takes uh, other parts of the anatomy to uh, uh, to to be able to take take these big steps. Hundred percent. Why do you think you took it? Why do you, why do you, you know you know? And this is so early in your your career. What made you think uh, take those big steps? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I'd like to rise to on the big occasions and I felt that, you know, I'd built a prison. Okay, so, okay, now what's next? What's the next thing bigger than that that I can do? And and I and had a very good life there. I mean, I had a, a, I had a, a girlfriend of four years who, you know, I, I gave that up. I gave up my, my family, seeing them, uh, all my mates, um, to go to Poland to not knowing where that would lead me. And, in fact, it didn't lead me back home. It led me to a completely different continent after Poland because it, it was uh, chasing the the big the big deals the big the big opportunities the big projects um, you 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 sort of uh, it almost becomes a self fulfilling prophecy that if you if you're motivated enough um, you will continue to chase the, those those opportunities um, but you have to be prepared that there are sacrifices along the way uh, and and I've I've had a lot of sacrifices along the way I mean I yeah I left my hometown. Uh, 30 years ago, and I, and to a degree, have never been back apart from going on holidays to see to see my mum. 
but you never really go back. And, and, and at the time, I thought that was my whole world. Uh, I, I knew there was a world outside the boundaries of the city, but I didn't really uh, understand the world of real estate was so interesting outside of, of my comfort zone. And each time I've done that, you know, after Poland, it was, wow, that was, that was cool. What's next? And then an opportunity came up in Australia um, to, to work on the back end of the Olympics and, um, you know, made that, that, that hike over to, to Sydney because uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, was Australian. She moved back and it sort of, it, it sort of mirrored, oh, here we go again. So off we go to Australia, uh, worked on the Olympics, the, the aquatic centre at, at Homebush, worked up in the, in the Blue Mountains on large tourism schemes. And that's where I started to spend a lot of time with the, the developers or the client, or I suppose it's probably a better word to describe it, of both of those and started to, to really understand why they were asking me to do things from a project management perspective, you know, starting to think more about the development side. You know, what is the step before uh, you've got the contractor and then you've got the client and sort of the meet in the middle is, is, is your, your consultants, your, your professionals, your, your project manager. And I thought, well, you know, this is the meat in the middle of the sandwich. How do I get to, to further up the chain? Um, and it really started to interest me the, the decisions about real estate. So why do you make a decision, a certain decision, financially or otherwise, from a client, through a client's lens? And that and that's sort of that's really where it happened for me because I was working on two things simultaneously, being the Olympics and um, and and up in the Blue Mountains in Katoomba, the uh, the cable car station, where I started again spending a lot of time with those clients uh, to understand um, what it is that's making them make these investments, and I really started to get get excited as to understanding how feasibilities would come together. How, how do you make a financial proposition on a piece of paper? You can, it's a go, no go after on a piece of paper. It's like bizarre. You think you know, when you're a contractor, you know, all this work's been done before, before it gets to you, you're almost just opening a, a, a model airplane box and building it. You know, here are the drawings, get on and do it. Now you've got to understand, you know, just the financial uh, side of things, and, and I wasn't trained in this. You know, that's the interesting part is I, I, I didn't do uh, for my, my qualification in, in construction. Um, I didn't do anything to do with feasibility studies or understanding any, anything to do with investment cases. So I sort of had to learn on the job. I, I, I just, this is one way to describe it um, in Australia. Now, um, we've moved South Africa to Poland to Australia. So... It, um, <laughs> Uh, I said, you know, we, you and I sort of chatted about this before, isn't it? If you know, our, our listeners are going to, uh, their heads are going to be spinning by the end of this episode in terms of because the the scale of these projects that you've you've taken on and the and the, the places around. But there's there's something I just want to remind our listeners of. The reason why I, I really look forward to these conversations and Giles, you're exact, you're a perfect example of this, and your peer group. It's the way in which you find ways to either extend your learning curves or to assess new opportunities that the vast majority of us would either would see as being too crazy, too wild, too too far beyond our comfort zone to even consider. Yet you and your peer group evaluate the, the these opportunities in a completely different way. And as a consequence, you get to reap all the benefits. So if I could then, Giles, ask you this next question, What's the next big move for you? 
yeah, I think after you've done an Olympics, you say to yourself, well, what's next? Um, <laughs> what can be bigger than this? Um, you know, Katoomba in, 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 in the Blue Mountains was the, uh, the second busiest uh, tourist attraction in Australia. So I started thinking, what's next? And, and this was the early 2000s. And, you know, Dubai was where all the action was happening. I mean, never been there, sort of found it on a map. I thought, well, yeah, that looks pretty interesting. Um, let's give that a go. So this is just as a timestamp. This is sort of the early 2000s, isn't it? 2003, 2004. Correct, yeah. <clears throat> so uh, just recently married uh, in, in Sydney. And um, my wife and I off went to Dubai with a on a tourist visa at the time uh, with no job prospects. And within two days, had both of us had, uh, had, had uh, very good roles in Dubai. I, I joined um, Dubai Festival City, which at the time was... Uh, the largest mixed-use development, 1,600 hectares, uh, on the banks of the Dubai Creek, and, and you know this is this is a long time ago in my mind. I mean, I've seen people see a lot about Dubai now, but you know there was nothing when we got to Dubai in, in 2002. There was not literally nothing, but but most of what you see in Dubai, uh, from the palms to the marinas, etc., it was it was just sand. There was nothing there. So you know we 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 thought. If there's an adventure that marries an opportunity to do something big, you have to go and find it, you know. And it was a, a big thing. We resigned our jobs in Australia and, and moved to Dubai with no job prospects, bit of savings to keep us going. Um, and Dubai has been a, a, a very, very good thing for me and my family. I'm, I'm you know, immensely blessed to have spent time in, in the boom part of Dubai. And Dubai, I mean, today is, is very similar to what it was 20 years ago. Um, it's, it's had its ups and downs in between uh, with the GFC crash in 2008. But early 2000s, you know, literally. And, and one of the things which, was, which really got me going uh, there was being, seeing these schemes being launched sort of every day, every week, every month. His Highness Sheikh Mohammed um, had... The most incredible vision, you know, uh, ski domes and underwater hotels and the palms, and and everybody thought, well, this is absolute nuts, um, and yet most of it has has come to fruition and has been extremely successful. So I think that is also what was encouraged me to make the move into Saudi in, in later part of my career, is that I, you know, I'm not scared of the big things. The big things are complicated. Uh, the big things are take a little bit more thinking. And I think what Dubai taught me is, you know, aim high. Uh, and if you achieve 80% of it, you're still bigger or better than the guy who aimed medium and, and also underperformed or under, didn't deliver. Um, so Dubai was a fantastic part of my career um, at Dubai Festival City. Um, and in those days, you, you got a two-year visa uh, for a work. It was still very, very different than it is today. It's very easy and free to get in another country. In those days, you were your passport was taken by your... Your employer. Um, it was, was quite a quite a tough environment, and and I'd spent a lot of time in, in the development space doing uh, a festival city. I built a golf course, uh, built a, a golf clubhouse with four seasons, and, and really enjoyed that hospitality side of things, uh, doing hotels. And after two years, I thought, well, now that was good. What what is the next sort of big opportunity? And, and I uh, I was uh, met and was introduced to a to a uh, a Sharia compliant uh, investment fund that was based out of Bahrain and their head office was uh, in Paris, so financially based in Bahrain. And I, I, I stayed in, I lived in Dubai and I would travel quite a bit. So this is the really start of, of the traveling journey. And one of the things I think listeners will probably uh, sort of 
appreciate is when you start, um, when you're chasing these deals around the world, you, you spend a lot of time on planes. Um, I spent every week I was somewhere in the Middle East. So the role at that point in time with this fund was to create hotel opportunities across the MENA region. So it's Middle East and North Africa. So one week I would be in, uh, in Casablanca and Tangiers in Morocco. And the week after I'd be uh, in Iran and everywhere in between from Cairo to Beirut to, to Syria you know, before the war. Looking for hotel opportunities and and meeting some very very interesting people from from government funds to to very wealthy individuals who were looking to create hospitality opportunities, um, and that this is where sort of another lesson that I learned came into play a lot is, you know, never judge somebody by their title um, or by how they appear when that when you first see them in these environments. You know, there's I spent a lot of time in, in across Middle East in, in small little towns meeting people who who are yeah, immense in a moderate house, who are immensely wealthy and and who have twenty hotels, and you, you don't you don't see it at first. And so I think I've learned a lot about perception of people and and especially stakeholder management. I think one of the the biggest lessons I've had my entire career is is everybody is a potential stakeholder in your world to achieve what what you need to do. So every day, there's different stakeholders I need to engage from people much higher than me, uh, where I am now, you know, right to the very top, to, to, to people on the side and below you who you're going to need to work with. So, you know, Dubai uh, just really opened my eyes to, to the world. Um, and now I'm a director of, of real estate development um, and looking for, for, for deals. So now it's all about deals. Now, Giles, you've told this fantastic sort of story of, you know, of someone who's obviously incredibly self-aware about sort of when they are learning and when that pace is slowing and, and being able to create opportunities. But sometimes, you know, events are, are bigger than ourselves, aren't they? And we're now getting up to sort of 2008. So how does, how does this help sort of um, uh, help shape your career? Yeah, 2008 was brutal. Uh, I was... Uh headhunted into a role with one of the, the largest families in Dubai to set up a new real estate development business. You know, we were capitalized uh, to the tune of multi-billion billion dollars at the time. And this was uh, January 2008. And I thought, wow, what a great year this is going to be. <laughs> and uh, uh, came to office one morning and the, my key didn't fit. It's like, well, what's going on here? Uh, you know, we heard about this, the world collapsing outside of Dubai and you know, we pretty much thought we were insulated. And, and that was sort of the first of my my redundancies uh, in the real estate space, and, and I think you know, not being alone, uh, half of Dubai was made redundant. You know, in a, in a very very short space of time, uh, we just had our first child, we had a, a mortgage, uh, and all of a sudden there's no job and no prospect of a job. Uh, and one of the things that when I was at uh, at that company, Al Garia, was that I um, we had looked to buy a, or buy into a steel flooring system, SPS, which we thought was very very cool. Uh, the family was a was an industrial family, so real estate was just one arm of the business. They had uh, places in steel, um, and uh, I phoned the guys up in in the UK uh, after that and said, "Look, look, you know, I've been made redundant. We're not going to be proceeding with this deal." And they said, "Well, why don't you come and advise us um, on how to crack the real estate industry with this product? You like the product, you believe in it, you're about to buy the company." Well, come and help us. And I thought, well, okay, well, you know, let's maybe we, we press pause for a bit in the real estate space and try try a different angle of real estate. And this is how do you introduce a extremely disruptive building product into the real estate space? And 
they were attempting to do it at a, at the ground up with the contractor, and I was saying, well, look, we've got to look at the economics. If we if you can if you can convince your developers that this is a better way of doing business, you're going to get traction from the top, and it'll be it'll come down to the consultants to 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 use. And and so that you know, based in Dubai, commuting almost to 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 the UK to Gerard's Cross, and then spending a lot of time in the States and in in uh, in Asia actually. Um, how, trying to make a very disruptive product work. So, you know, that was a, a, a challenging part because I was an advisor. I was almost on a on a deal basis. Uh, I was paid in shares. One of the things that I, that I had learned early on in my career was to put money away for a rainy day. I think 2008 was an extremely rainy day for, for me and, and for others. And, and, that, and that worked for, you know, for a while. And I think off, but I, but I was never at home. And I think this is where where you have to now start to look at the bigger picture. You're not, you know, you you you're not one of one. You're one of a family now. And my wife and I decided that we wanted to sort of find it, find something else to do because this was this was tough. I was home maybe a week, a month with a newborn, and um, at that point in time, uh, an opportunity arose in in South Africa. And I thought, well, you know, I never even considered going back there, but but an opportunity arose. Um, with a company called Liberty Properties, which was one of the, the largest uh, insurance-based uh, property development companies, the pioneers of, of large retail in Africa. They built the first uh, large enclosed super regional shopping center had a large mixed-use portfolio. And um, that was, a, that was a, a, an opportunity I, I grabbed. And that was uh, 2010 going into 2011 and told wife, kids, the dog, right, we're off, we're going to Africa. Uh, moved to Johannesburg, which I'd been to, I think, once in my entire life. Uh, not, not was never my first choice to go to. And that they, and what they saw in me was somebody who had come, who had spent time in Dubai doing the biggest and sort of the best. And they wanted that thinking to shake up that their development team who was used to doing the norm. The, they were all in their comfort zone. Um, so you know, here comes a guy from Dubai with the big ideas. And it actually worked out. I think we 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 worked very hard to to rationalise a, a large portfolio. We got rid of sort of the the rats and mice of the real estate. Focused on the core real estate. Reinvested in those core real estate uh, assets, the large mixed use precincts. And it's an extremely successful business as it is today. It's rebranded itself now. Um, uh, and that was again another big move. You now you've moved. I don't know. Now I'm on my fourth global move. Um, now. Bringing a wife and child and dog along, um, and it's a. Uh, it, it, but the opportunity was too good to pass, and um, and I thought, you know, I will learn a lot here. So now I'm moving into listed real estate space, and there's no guidebook for how to deal with listed real estate space. You know, you're not at the stock exchange with results presentations. You know, you're following corporate rules. Um, there's trading rules. There's all sorts of of different issues than when you are just a developer for a private private equity fund or a contractor. Uh, so that led me into that sort of middle period of my my career back in back in Africa. And then for the guys who are listening, this yeah, you know, we're now in sort of 2015, uh, and the next big move then for you is is returning back once more back to Dubai. But the bit I really wanted to hear about is that first leap into the C-suite. Yeah, I mean uh, to do to jump to C-suite, I had to move continents twice again. <laughs> so. From from Africa back to to Dubai, and and an interesting opportunity arose there. My previous CEO at Dubai Festival City, you know, I'd always stayed in contact with 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 previous uh, colleagues. An opportunity arose with the DIFC, the Dubai International Financial Centre, 
and that was a, was a great opportunity. And so I went over and joined joined Brett Schaefer there, and we we, we did some really good things um, in the DIFC. And then, in a change of, of the guard, there was a, was quite a strong change in the expat environment there at the time with government ministries um, with nationalisation. Brett and I both were were made uh, redundant. Um, and then, you know, out of out of these these challenges where you go home and you go, well, what am I going to do now? You know, two weeks later, a phone rings and says, well, we are we are headhunters and we're looking for somebody from Dubai uh, uh, who would be interested in coming to Johannesburg, South Africa. And I said to them, well, I'm not really interested because I'd really only be interested in, in, in something called Waterfall City because I've read about it and it's, you know, this massive mixed use. And they said, well, funny you should say that because that's exactly what it is. And I went, you got to be joking. Um, I said, okay, well, let's meet up. So I flew over to, to meet them and and instantly connected with that management team. I met the chairman of the board and attack at the, was it, or still is, um, a listed REIT on the stock exchange. Um, and, and they had their hands on a, the most incredible piece of land um, that uh, would, would eventually lead to a, a, a mixed-use development that, uh, has won six of the seven of the last seven years, should I say, world's best mixed use. Um, and I think I, I was uh, went over as the, 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 the chief development officer. Uh, so four of those seven um, was, was sort of under my watch. Uh, there was uh, two before me and one after me. So so it, has, it is a bit of a trend there. They're, they're doing an incredible job um, considering the, the challenges down that part of the world. And then moving into C-suite was just a completely different environment. So where I historically wanted, you know, I loved being in those design meetings, uh, loved spending time in the creative, the creative, the kitchen of, of real estate, um, you know, cooking up a, a design that mirrors or represents your, your vision and your, your feasibility study. You know, you, you're going from a, from a manager to a leader. And, and that's a difficult transition. That's because you can't see it coming and you don't know you have to do that. So now you've got a team of 20 and you've got, uh, you can't go to all the design meetings anymore and you get upset because you think, well, I've got to go to a, a, an audit committee meeting and, a, and an insurance and an environmental environmental committee meeting, but I want to go and play with the boys down at uh, on site or uh, in, the, in the design meetings. And it is a very, very big change, but it's also extremely rewarding because the effort you put in and you start sitting in those management meetings and you start sitting in, in Exco's, you start to see a business running rather than a department. You're seeing a holistic approach to a, you know, this is an ecosystem where everything from marketing to legal to to operations is is, is a is a is a well-oiled machine, and, and you're a part of it. So you know, when you're a contractor or a developer, your world is sort of your world. You're not really paying attention to to the other parts of the business. So at this stage, I'm you know really starting to 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 enjoy. Um, the length and breadth of, of understanding of, and running a business uh, and all the headaches that come with it. You know, uh, you know staff are, are great. Staff can also be a headache. And we had a lot of, uh, of challenges uh, in that, especially that transition from manager to leader. I think it, it's probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do um, because culture, which is, you know, I'm not a culture vulture at the best of times, but culture is something I've learned to appreciate the older I get and, and the more senior I've got it's almost the unwritten um, glue which binds a business together. And it's so hard to capture culture because you can't dictate culture to someone. Culture is almost 
the level of tolerance that, that the team is prepared to accept from each other. What behavior will you and won't you accept as a team? And, and that's, you know, when you're building these startup businesses and, and attack, you know, when I joined had three people in development, we weren't doing, we'd done a couple of, of, of developments and, you know, I think we knocked out uh, in the four years that I was there, probably, uh, I would say, uh, close to eight, nine, 800,000 square meters of real estate. So we got very busy very quickly and we had to bring people on. And, and the thing with bringing people on board, everybody comes from a different place, a, a different level of what they accept as behavior, as acceptable behavior in the, in the business and how they go about business. And you've got to sort of mold this team. So that C-suite was where you really have to step up uh, to a different level. And uh, yeah, that mixed use is, is big. You're doing industrial, you're doing in, in commercial, retail, high-rise residential. And, and there, the stakeholders were very interesting because you, you, you're now managing, you know, the premier of the province. You know, you're measuring, you know, the minister of transport. You're meeting them to, to get things done. So your stakeholder world has gone from, uh, from where I was historically, and I spoke about stakeholders earlier, is that these stakeholders along my entire career and everyone's career, I suppose, to a degree, are, are people very influential. And that's where I ran into my, my second mentor who sort of had been in that space for a while and he sort of started to, to soften those rough edges um, for me at, at that C-suite level. One question I wanted to ask you about is... What do you think was the most important lesson you learned at this stage? You know, this is, you, you know, you've driven the point home, and the guys listening about what, what a big shift this, this is. And what I want to find out is what's the most important lesson you do you learned? Well, yeah, for me, the, the most important thing definitely was that that culture, which I'd always sort of thought was a, a very new age way of describing something that you couldn't really describe. You can't write it down or put it in a bottle, so to speak, and then started to really learn and appreciate that culture is a very important, you, know, you can have high-performing teams with poor culture, and you can have poor teams with a very good culture. And how do you get those two to, to be in the, in the right order, you know, a high-performing team with a good culture? So the lesson definitely I learned was that, that transition from manager to leader, and then the leader, people look up to you to set the tone for the culture. So you are sort of one of the biggest influences on on that work culture and you know you work hard play hard and real estate has always really been work hard play hard guys and um you know taking sort of seeing you in your team you know 15 years younger or 20 years younger and thinking you know that that was me 20 years ago very rough around the edges just highly motivated just a bit of a bulldozer um but now you're in corporate and you're going to you know you know briefings at the at the stock exchange and you're doing uh you know investor roadshows uh, and you can't be like that anymore. And it, 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 the lesson was that the audience and your, your role definitely starts to change the way you see uh, all those around you, especially those down below you. And I mean, down as in, as in, in a hierarchical uh, sort of uh, structure of the business. You know, my, my entry-level guys, you, you, you pull them aside and you say, listen, this is how things are. This is, you, you, you become a mentor. And, I, and, I, and I've become a mentor now to, to guys um, even – it's still there around things that my mentor had sort of imparted on me. I think I can't stress enough that it's to have a mentor in your life, your professional career, um, not just for the time that you are working with that person one-on-one, -on -one, but across across years and continents and uh, et cetera. It's, it's been very, very, very good for me. It's been part of, I think, what's, what's pushed me to achieve what I have. Now, I asked 
someone who's known you very well uh, over the years as to what they think were your prominent traits and why you were so successful at this particular period in your life. And this is what they said. Giles has got boundless energy, <laughs> laser focus on the important issues, great interpersonal skills. And this bit I thought was interesting, Giles. And his ability to prioritize and motivate his team. So the biggest lesson learned is obviously been well applied, Giles, as well. Yeah, that's a, nice to hear that. I think it, it was true. I think we, um, you know, when you become a leader, it's you lead by example, and, and that's what motivates. If you have a great leader, you know, your team will run through a brick wall for you, um, as I have for, for good leaders. Um, and I think that that's yeah, that is almost crystallizing your your previous question about what was that ultimate lesson learned there was, um, yeah, motivating a motivated team is an incredible team. They can do anything. So. Yeah, once more, just you know, for the for my benefit and the listeners, let's have a you know a, a quick sort of timestamp. You know, we're in we're in now sort of a period of two thousand sort of eighteen up until sort of twenty twenty two. You know, yeah, uh, you have revitalized, you've refocused the attacks development strategy. You know, you've um, you're delivering the waterfall. This this scheme's been named the world's best misuse uh, scheme uh, for four consecutive years. It all sounds like the dream, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we we were we were doing things that, and, and what I, I suppose I, I love I love doing is doing things that have never been done before, or things that have been told are impossible to do. Uh, and in that particular space, uh, you know, I was I'm very passionate about sustainable and, and green uh, architecture, and uh, you know, how do we how do we do things better today than we did them yesterday in the in the, in the sort of the sustainability space. And I was invited to become a director of the Green Building Council, um, which I did. And within six months, they asked me to be the chairman, which I then took over. We, I mean, it was in a poor state. Um, we'd just been through COVID uh, or going through COVID. Uh, nobody's really building. Nobody's certifying their buildings. The Green Building Council, we had to you know, lay off people. We had to rationalize the office. But we took it through. A, we re- re-engineered the way the Green Building Council did its business. We introduced new rating tools. And this is while I'm also still at Attack, and, and likewise for Attack, we had to rationalise how we how we approach real estate. Came through COVID, and you know, one day got a phone call that said, uh, you know, I'm calling you from Saudi Arabia. Have you have you heard of a thing called Neom? And I went, Yeah, I've heard of it, but I haven't really paid attention. And then they said, Have you heard of the line? And I went, Yeah, that's that crazy scheme. Uh, that's never going to work. And they said, Well, we'd like to talk to you about it. And I said, Okay, then talk. But I, but I'm happy. I mean, I'm. I'm I'm, I'm in a great space. I've got a, and you know, in, in in attack, my home was two kilometers from from my office. My kids went to school in the estate. I mean, I lived in like a five kilometer radius bubble. I didn't really need to leave. It was so my life was so easy. And um, they said, look, come over to 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 Saudi and have a look at what we're doing. We think your background and you know what you've done and from um, our research and accounts, your your determination and motivation to not accept no is something I think we could do with uh, where we are. So I, I said, no problem. I flew over and, and, and met the team and saw it and went, oh, my God, this is, this is nuts. But they are assembling the greatest minds and team in the world. And if they think I'm part of that team, you know, that, that's, that's pretty cool. I, I quite like this. And I had a long think about it on the flight back to, back to Johannesburg. And... Um, then they called me up and said, what do you think? And I said, look, I think it's absolutely insane. I, it, it sounds 
undoable and therefore I'm extremely interested <laughs> because um, almost like hold my beer, let's, uh, let me have a bash at this because it really looks like something that, um, and if you look at the caliber of the people that work at Neom and, and on the line, um, they have gone and assembled, you know, sort of the best of the best. So I said to my wife, you're up for another move? And she said, you know what? <laughs> um, we've done five or six. Uh, just pack the kids and the dog up and let's go. So we packed everybody up, moved back to Dubai. So my family's in Dubai. Uh, I lived in Neom, which is in the northwest corner of Saudi Arabia. Um, we're on the, on, the band, on the border of Jordan and Egypt and Israel. Um, and I arrived here as executive, develop, executive director of development. With three weeks later, my boss resigned. I then took over his role which is called the line proponent. So I lead a team right now of about 140 uh, development team. Uh, we are we are the master developer of the line. So we uh, we handle the real estate. We are the developer, uh, the internal developer for Neon of the line. And it's been an incredible journey because <clears throat> the whole world thinks we can't do this. Our chairman backs us 100%. And we, we are doing it, uh, you know, no matter what anybody says that this is impossible. We are putting in somewhere in the region of 68 piles a day. The world's largest construction site is uh, about 20 kilometers from my office. Uh, it's the line. It's the phase one of the line. There's an international airport. There's a mass transport system. There's a whole new port. So so sort of everything, all my lessons in <clears throat> my career and these, these turns um, in stepping up and having to move somewhere to make a difference. I'm now literally in the middle of nowhere doing exactly that. You know, it's all these paths have led to this position. And yeah, this is now sort of my entire life's lessons and, and, and everything that I've learned is, is being applied almost daily on what we're doing at the moment. You know, how do you, because everything we do has never been done before. So we are literally inventing everything. You know, yes, we've built big buildings, but we've never in, in history have never built one structure 170 kilometers long and 500 meters tall uh, that houses 9 million people and has almost a billion square meters of real estate. Um, it's creating London or, or New York and putting it on a footprint of 34 square kilometers uh, in a structure that's half a kilometer high. And, and that's what we're doing. We're building it. So um, you know, all roads ultimately lead to to the crowning glory, I suppose, of your career. And this is it. This is it for me. This is, you know, I've always said I, I chase those big deals and the, and the biggest opportunities. And I think this is the biggest thing in history at the moment. Yeah, it's been great. So one more question then. You described then the line, obviously, with with great sort of detail and really set the scene. And it is incredible, right? I don't think there's any other word for it. But I wanted to ask, how does it make you feel that it's not always met with universal praise? There are lots of opponents, and, I, you know, and it's hard for me to assess as to how close they are or how informed they are, but I did want to, I want to, want to ask you in terms of how that makes you feel. Yeah, I, it actually, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a motivating factor for me. We have a lot of naysayers in the world who are unfortunately uninformed on matters. So, you know, the line um, is is Saudi Arabia's attempt to deal with the problems that blight every single city in the world. You know, we have uh, one and a half billion people urbanizing uh, in the next eight years globally, predominantly in the third world. Uh, they are urbanizing at a rate that's never been seen in history. Uh, Saudi Arabia will have a massive population uplift and 
they can either, those people in a traditional sense would urbanize around the, the existing centers of, of gravity being Jeddah, Riyadh, Kobar, etc. But all they're doing is extending the, the sprawl of the city. So sprawl, congestion, pollution, uh, and inequality come as a byproduct of these cities expanding. So whether it's London or Munich or, or, or any city in the world, as a city gets wider and bigger, the poor generally live the furthest away from where they need to be. They spend the most time commuting, therefore they create the most pollution. The line was an answer to a question, His Highness said to the predecessors before me that, you know, on, on how to create the line was, how do we create a new city, but we don't, we're not left with these, these problems? And the guys sat down and said, That's a, you know, I don't know, we, let us have a think. So the first version of the line was 170 kilometers long, but it was sort of these little satellite towns that were all connected below grade. And as Highness said, you know, we need to think bigger than this, you know, and, and, and it's almost deja vu back to Dubai 2002, where Sheikh Mohammed was saying, guys, think bigger, think, think outside the box. You, you, you're too constrained by what has been done rather than what can be done. This is the pyramid moments uh, where, where, you know, the guy who thought up the pyramids, the guy before him must have thought, this is nuts, you can't do this. We're in that same space at the moment. Um, so the line literally attempts, and, and you know, right or wrong, it attempts to, to deal with all of these headaches. There's no cars, there's no pollution. It runs 100% on renewable energy. It lives in hyper proximity. So, you know, the most efficient way of storing materials in the world is to stack them on top of each other. That's why you have warehouses. That's why you have bookshelves. You know, think of think of the line as a, as a giant bookshelf, and every book is a is an asset class that sits in this giant frame because it's efficient. So people, you don't have one ground floor. We've got four ground floors. So technically, if you're on the fiftieth floor and the ground floor ground floor number three, for example, is on the eightieth floor. You can go up to the ground floor. You don't have to go down to the real on the ground. So we have multiple high streets. We have multiple assets. And because of it, the way it's designed, hyper proximity means everybody is literally five minutes walk from any other part of, of a module. And each module is 500 meters tall, 800 meters long, 200 meters wide. It's two blades. Um, it's about six and a half million square meters. And it has 80,000 people in it. So that's London, in London sense, that would be Chelsea, Kensington, Earls, Earls Court, essential all together in, in, a, in something that's got 160,000 square meters of, foot floor, of uh, floor plate. That's it. So the line is attempting to, to make sure that humanity going forward lives in a, in a net zero environment. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of negativity in the press about it. There's also a hell of a lot of positivity. And if you, if, when people come here and they go through and they understand what we're doing. You know, these are academics, these are, are futurists. They start to understand what we are trying to do. Now, whether we get it 100% right, I think we're gonna get a lot of it right. Um, but like I said, we, we are, we're, we're inventing things that have never been done before. No one's had an elevator that can move horizontally in a building or in a structure. We're the perfect opportunity to do that. These opportunities really don't come around a lot, a lot in one's career where you can reinvent the wheel. And, and that's to a degree what we're doing here. Well, Charles, yeah, I've got to wrap up now. But listening to all this, I, I, I don't know whether we have won people over in terms about sort of, you know, what's happening with uh, with Neom or whether it is, is the right solution. But what I am absolutely certain about is that the guys listening to this 
cannot help but be inspired by the attitude you've taken to each chapter of the career, being self-aware at the times of when that pace of that, uh, that learning has slowed and what you have done about it. Not waiting for external factors, but you creating that catalyst for change. So Giles, you know, for that, that is an incredibly valuable lesson for anyone learning. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Nick.